kind of harness anti-French British jingoism to the ends of refugees. Why doesn't Nigel Farage appreciate as a as a Bre- such a Brexiteer that people really just want to get out of France? I think anyone <laughs> coming over from France should be granted automatic asylum. I'm the head of research at the ASI. This week, I'm joined by John McDonald from the ASI and Tom Slater, who's the deputy editor of Spiked. Blessed the day that we have finally succeeded in managing to see the downfall of Public Health England. Is this something you could ever imagine would happen, Tom? No, not at all. It just felt like its position was so cemented for so long. You know, even as it got more and more ridiculous over the years, you know, more and more interested in, in cakes and sugar and biscuits um, rather than what we would all assume it was set up to do especially in the course of a pandemic um it's it's remarkable that it's been toppled so quickly but i think you know if anything the pandemic did reflect and kind of put in sharp relief how useless it turned out to be at the things we wanted it to do um whilst it was carrying on all the sorts of things that you or i wouldn't want it to do so maybe it was never born that from yeah we'll, we'll come to this in, in more detail in a second john how are you celebrating are you having a big chocolate cake i'm i'm enjoying it out to help out tonight and very good. the other nights well that I get. Make sure you order dessert. <laughs> and go to, if you really want to cheat the system, you can, of course, go to different restaurants for each course. Today we're going to discuss the downfall of Public Health England, the government's A-level U-turn, and asylum seeker arrivals. First, on Public Health England. After months of criticism, Health Secretary Matt Hancock has announced that PHE will be replaced by a new pandemic preparedness body called the National Institute for Health Protection, focused exclusively on external threats. Now, Tom, as we were getting to there a second ago, mm. we've had some problems with PHE for a long time, but I think we always just presume that even though, do- though they were doing all this kind of nonsense on the nanny state, they were kind of competent enough when it came to a pandemic, but when the time came, they seemed to have failed. No, completely. And I think that's one of the staggering things about it is that its fundamental responsibility is to protect us from infectious diseases and pandemics. It's written into its founding documents. And yet it com- this should have really been its time to shine. And yet it just flopped so remarkably, not only flopped, but actually got in the way. I mean, as you detailed in your report a few months back in relation to the question of testing, really being a block to scaling that up. We've all- also more recently had that fiasco around the daily death tolls and essentially treating people as if they could never recover from coronavirus, you know, 5,000 of the deaths having to be wiped off the slate. And that, you know, continuing to kind of vex the debate because those figures were so inflated. And even if you just think about it, like Duncan Selby, who's obviously been in the news um, over the past 24, 48 hours, he's been absent from this discussion you know meanwhile Chris Whitty has become a bit of a celebrity people are making creepy effigies to him and all this kind of thing he's been the kind of invisible man which I think was a little bit of a uh, an indicator of how um, at the point at which PHE was supposed to step up if to the extent that it did step up it got in the way um, which definitely paved the way for today of all days where actually the announcement that's actually been packed up which is interesting. Yeah it is quite extraordinary it's it's worth just going back to the fact that uh, Public Health England was created as part of what seemed like a good idea, which was to move um, public health responsibilities, move them from the NHS mm. to councils, and then have a national kind of coordinating body to to deal with things like pandemics, but also then to deal with uh, preventative health. And I think it's in the latter where it really had its downfall because it was really quite stretched thin, not monetarily, but it chose to put a lot of its focus, a lot of its attention over the last seven years onto things that would not be considered traditional public health on, on individual decisions. Now, I was going back and having a look at some of what Lansley was proposing, and he very much had some ideas in there that were against the nanny state that were supposed to be, well, let's 
have conversations with people. Let's do what is necessary on a local level to get people to live a healthier lives. Mm-hmm. I don't think the point of public health thing was ever to, to focus on this nanny state stuff. And yet somehow it, it fell down that rabbit hole to the point where when the pandemic did finally come, when they literally had this core function to stop the spread of infectious diseases, they were incapable of doing it. No, completely. And I think that's one thing that I'm sure we'll get onto, which is this is the nature of the nanny state blob itself, insofar as the people who tend who are staffing these organisations, the academics, etc. There has been, it seems to me, this kind of broader shift towards lifestyle issues and away from kind of traditional public health things. So even if this wasn't set out at the outset as what it was supposed to do, you have seen a kind of drift. I mean, Chris Snowden from the IEA has looked at the, just the amount of money that's been allocated in British public health spending to infectious diseases as opposed to everything else. It's about 13% of the budget has been spent on protecting the public from infectious diseases, what we all want it to do. You know, Meanwhile, they've spent twice as much of that on anti-obesity schemes. So I think part of this is a problem with Public Health England itself, clearly. I mean, it was overstepping the mark time and again. I remember in 2016, it actually put out a report effectively lobbying the government in England to introduce minimum pricing on alcohol. Why? state-funded executive body should be doing that i have no idea but again i feel like it's it does reflect a kind of general trend in how we think about public health which increasingly was um, less about those external threats as matt hancock was talking about today and more about the threat we apparently pose to ourselves as these people seem to think so john what do you make of this situation it is quite extraordinary that we're in the middle of a pandemic and yet the government has taken in some ways the quite courageous step of of shutting down public health england and, and trying to do this restructure where they're bringing together nhs stats and trace so the kind of operational side of the the pandemic response with the analytical side at the joint biosecurity center with the kind of scientific side that's currently a phe does this work is this a, is this going to be a successful model well, I remember last time I was on the podcast, uh, three or four weeks ago, I think, the government's plan to to ban so-called unhealthy food adverts before the watershed was just coming to shape. And we thought that PHE would see a sort of a stay of execution, given that, that the government was renewing its war on sugar and, and, and unhealthy food like English mustard. But it, it felt like PHE as, a, as, a, as an organization got distracted by the pandemic from its sort of fav- favored mission of policing how we eat. But it seems that it's it's being repurposed. We're getting a, a National Institute for Health Protection. I think it's good that we now will have a, an outfit that is focused specifically on public health in the sense that we'll be protected from external threats, as you mentioned earlier, uh, an infectious disease. But somewhat ominously, I think Matt Hancock suggested that he wanted to see health improvement embedded more deeply across the board, which sounds like the sort of the more irritating, distracting nanny state business that PHE used to do will now be part of the government's broader agenda rather than just being sort of whittled away completely. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely quite worrying as a step. I, I think nothing that Hancock said in his speech about this kind of national institute worried me. It, it seemed quite sensible to empower an organization mm-hmm. to focus where Public Health England had not been focused, where Public Health England was incapable operationally as well of expanding tests incapable of providing good advice to care homes again and again but this kind of all the government approach was left very unspecified and said that there'll be further consultations on does that worry you tom where, where do we think we go for someone for boris who was originally supposed to be the libertarian hero on these issues mm-hmm. he's definitely not ended up that way no not at all and i think that's the great myth about boris johnson is that he was a sort of libertarian you know kind of gives off that vibe he's written a few columns over the years he acts like a libertarian out. in his personal life but <laughs> certainly yes he lives it he lives it but he doesn't necessarily want 
the rest of us to live it, it seems like. And that's definitely come to the fore in the last couple of weeks. But in a way, I, I think we shouldn't really be surprised. You know, he was one of the first people to trial a sugar tax, as far as I can remember it. But it was in the City Hall building itself. You know, I remember when he became mayor, one of the first things he did was ban drinking on the tube, which, of course, sparked days of um, organised parties on the tube, which is quite funny. Um, so, again, you know, he's always been a little bit of a weather vane on some of these issues where, where it kind of felt convenient or whether it felt like it was capturing the mood of the country to have a pop at the nanny state blob he would but again coronavirus hastened of course by his own uh brush with it seems to have put that all to bed and again there is there's obviously always two things there's a kind of political there's a politics of it and there's this political direction that people want to take things in that is quite important again at least the separation that matt hancock made between traditional public health things and more of a kind of health preventative approach at least on an organizational level might be useful but at the same time you know you do it is worthwhile taking on some of these institutions where you do have these ideas kind of fortify themselves i guess in the in the act of destruction maybe something new will crop up but what is concerning is that again the politics of this in terms of the boris johnson administration is not really a break at all from his predecessors in any case it might just be that those kinds of activities move from what will be this new nihp and just moved elsewhere perhaps yeah, the, the the danger is that Public Health England's legacy lives on as a kind of zombie on this preventative health side. There, there mm. is a bit of hope, though, that if there isn't this relatively high-profile, relatively well-funded organisation, and it's more devolved down to GPs, it's more devolved down to councils, that this kind of all-of-government approach becomes a, a kind of shadow of the fact that there is a bit less of a focus on it. I mean, the government's for claim, I mean, it's worth unpacking their claim, for example, that obesity is a key contributor to, to COVID deaths. I mean, on the margins, it does make a difference, but it was even the BBC more or less made the point that it's actually just a very minor effect. If, if Britons were as obese as Southern Europeans who are slightly less obese, you're talking of perhaps a few hundred less deaths. Now that would be very good, but in the, in the scope of 40, 50,000, 60,000 excess deaths, so as we've had in the overall figures, it's, it's not that big a deal. And even that statistic they use claiming it was that 100 million pounds could be saved for the NHS. Now, it's 100 million pounds over five years, which gets you, uh, in considering the NHS's 100 billion plus a year budget, you get to about 9am on January the 1st. That's how long the NHS takes to spend 100 million pounds. So it's not a huge saving to the NHS or anything like that by reducing obesity. In some ways, it sounded like almost ridiculously nothing. Um, and yet mm-hmm. that's where the government wants to focus, perhaps to hide from the inadequate strategy to tackle an actual pandemic and to stop it coming into the country in the first place. No, completely. I think it's also part of a broader shift that we've seen from government recently, which is trying to um, quite consciously, I think, kind of refocus our fighting the pandemic efforts as if it's kind of entirely a question of individual responsibility, um, which, of course, people should take their own precautions. People are, should be responsible for themselves and their loved ones and all the rest of it. But at the same time, it is that kind of shift towards it's because you're all too fat. Um, or it's because no one's, you know, um, observing social distancing. The discussion recently around local lockdowns, et cetera, is often focused on a question of individual behaviour, which whilst definitely is going to be a component of all of this, isn't the whole story. And I also think, unfortunately, it seems to be working. You know, you look at the polls most recently, YouGov, I think, were the ones who did the survey, pointing out that if there is a second wave, most people are going to blame the public for it. It seems mm. like at this point we've kind of been conditioned into that. And I think that's one of the unfortunate things, because it does feel, at least on some level, to be an attempt to distract away from the failings that have come from the centre, partly PHE, but certainly not limited to it. Uh, John, it's almost like the, the government wants to elect a new public. <laughs> That's very interesting you put it that way around. We've got a 
be, I think, quite appreciative of the fact that there is this new organization of Public Health England and their failures have been acknowledged that we're we're rewarding failure with abolition of the organization. But also, I think it's just going to, this need to double down and make the point that there's no evidence that advertising bans um, are particularly helpful to tackle obesity or that the sugar tax actually reduce overall obesity. Is it just going back and kind of making those arguments and trying to just be as prominent as we, we, we can in, in combating all the nonsense. No, I think that's definitely really important because we do have to have, have out those arguments. Again, the defeat of public health England doesn't necessarily mean anything in relation to rolling back the policies we have or fighting off the ones that are coming forward. But I think it's also important as well as to kind of, you know, bust the myths of the nanny state lobby in relation to all these different policies, just to make a more fundamental argument for individual autonomy, for freedom, for the idea that what we choose to eat, what we choose to do with our own bodies is no one's business as long as we're not harming anyone else that is a really powerful argument and it's easy to it's easy to forget that i think in the midst of the uh the necessary and often quite technical discussions we have policy to policy whereas that i think is always going to be the root of the argument if we're going to win it across the board yeah i think there's a sense of a little bit kind of captor's syndrome here where people have just come to Mm. expect so much Mm. from government and to solve every issue and we've, we've reached this point. I think Public Health England is a good example of this and their failings, which is that if you try to do everything, you're not going to do anything particularly well. And hopefully we can, that can be one of the, the learnings from this mistake um, and this pandemic and, and the fact that so many people have died, that there is a better way to do things and that the government needs to be focused on the, the challenges that really matter. And talking of another government failure, we've got the government's U-turn on the decision to moderate A-level results after it left many individual students worse off, particularly from historically disadvantaged schools who saw their marks downgraded. Now, John, what was the basis of this? Why did, why did the government feel a need to begin this process of moderation? What's the story? Well, they felt pressure from from pretty much everyone, to be honest. I can't think of of anyone uh, who was particularly pleased with the way the, uh, the algorithm has been come to known as, how it worked. The decision to use an algorithm that factored in the scores from the test center, the average score from the test center, which you would go to, it would sort of filter out your own agency as to as to what kind of grade you might get. It's offensive to people on the right because it, it filters out the ability to prove yourself with with hard work and intelligence and those on the left because it seems to act as a, as a mechanism for, for reducing social mobility. Mm. And I think this ultimately goes back to the difficulty of the fact that the government cancelled exams to begin with. And once you cancel exams, you have no indication of what a student's capacity is at an individual level. So then you have the situation where we we know that the teachers greatly exaggerate and are excessively optimistic about the marks they give their students. So the government initially did not want to, for probably for, for good reasons, it didn't want to devalue marks by just allowing teachers to decide. But, but ultimately, at the same time, there was, there was no better situation in allowing mm. using an algorithm and, and trying to decide at a group level where someone should be ranked. When we know just because nobody got an A star at your school last year doesn't mean that you, can't, you couldn't have achieved that if, if you got the opportunity to do it. So you have this kind of, whilst it seems like at a collective level, on average, the results were about the same, it was going to gloss over individual injustices by with the methodology because... In, in what is might be right on an average might be very unfair to each individual who's who's impacted by it, and it kind of kind of reveals that sense in which the government was very confident about the system, and they they were very even after Scotland, amazingly even after mm. Scotland did U-turn, the government still went ahead with it. What, why do you think that was, Tom? Why why do you think they were just so obsessed with 
their algorithm, with their system, with their with their methodology. It seems like there's something that happens a lot, a lot of the time in, in this government. Mm, I, I really can't put my finger on it because they had so many red flags. You know, obviously there was the results from Scotland, which you know should have been the point at which they really thought about how they were going to you know get around this. Um, and even beforehand, there was loads of warning signs. Obviously, back in July, you had that report from the Education Select Committee, which was warning against what it saw as some of the problems. You know, the algorithm not taking into account new schools or schools that were actually on an kind of improving trajectory. They were pointing out some of these issues. You had the um, Royal Society of Statisticians were raising concerns that it was kind of too much of a black box, that there wasn't enough scrutiny of the algorithm. They even offered to send a couple of people over. They actually were rebuffed by Ofqual in the end because they wanted them to sign NDAs in order to do this. Um, <laughs> it feels really dysfunctional. It feels like them digging in. And then especially over the course of the weekend where you had Ofqual put out there the procedure for appeals only to take it down a few hours later because it seemed to contradict. You had the whole thing at the end of last week with this discussion around mocks where mocks were presented as an alternative, despite the fact if you ask any teacher, if you ask anyone who works in the school, the idea that that's a decent way of trying to assess across the board, given loads of schools do it in different ways, some mark them harshly, some don't do them at all, all this kind of stuff, I think has been really quite striking. It's been like this kind of slow motion car crash over the course of the last couple of weeks in particular, and I can't understand why it's taken this long for them to get a grip of it. Now, as you were pointing out, a lot of this is basically stemming from those original decisions made in the first place if you cancel exams as they did despite the fact that it almost doesn't matter how you feel about the schools closures question exams at least is something that could very feasibly be done in With a social distancing yeah by definition exams <laughs> yeah, are in lofty sports halls and all the rest of it is where is where we do these things so that was very strange but then also again this nonsense of trying to do individual attainment on the basis of group averages doesn't make any sense. And I think what Labour have actually been very effective on in the last couple of days is pointing out how kind of fundamentally sort of unconservative this is in relation to the ideals of as, if you're talented, you should be able to have a fair shake no matter where you come from. This completely grates against that. And the fact that this wasn't spotted earlier and acted on or acted on, even though it had obviously been spotted earlier, I think is a, is a real in, just indictment of how this government operates. Feels like. The most extraordinary part of this I found was the, the screenshot from the, the off-call report on the methodology that found when they applied the same algorithm to last year's results, mm. it, it got the marks wrong between 30 and 70% of the time. So clearly going to be a lot of people who you just your predictive model you just don't have enough information for going in. I think it was David Bush who, who described it as garbage in, garbage out. If you just mm. don't have that essential information of how well a student's done, you, you can't do it. I mean, honestly, I was initially kind of sympathetic to the idea that we don't just want to grade and fight because you you want to have someone's A level result having some meaning to it. But I, I think realistically, once they cancelled exams, the A level results were going to have no meaning to it, and that they they just chose this algorithmic method around it rather than just going with the teacher grades, which it, I mean, it doesn't feel like any, either is particularly fair. It's like twice as many people this year as normal will get A star grades. And whilst mm -hmm. it might be nice if you're one of those individuals, it doesn't necessarily mean that you earned it and you'll never know if, if you earned it uh, because you'll never have that exam. We've kind of stolen that opportunity as a result of the pandemic um, by not having exams. And you could say exams would have been excessively favorable to a small number of students who got good tutoring at their private school, even during lockdown and even with remote learning. So even if they had exams, it probably wouldn't have been particularly great for, for a lot of students who just wouldn't have had the same educational opportunities as, as a lot of other students. It's kind of like, there's, there's no good way around it here. Uh, but now we're, now we're at the point where the government has made this U-turn, comes up to the universities, doesn't it, John, about 
who they do accept and who they don't accept and who they've previously given offers to and whether or not they give more offers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I'd be interested to see if there was data around the percentage of people who who still miss out on their offers, given that all people will now essentially be able to use that the highest available grades, whether they were lucky and got revised up because of the algorithm. I think that's fairly rare. Or their teacher assigned grades puts universities in an interesting position where they probably will, will, as you said earlier, see quite a quite a higher intake than they were probably expecting. And I think, given the existing issues around student housing, for example. It, it puts them with, with quite a significant problem to deal with quite fast. I think this is quite an interesting issue where some like 70% of students do just get their f- their first offer. But for the remaining students, mm. there's a lot of offers they're given that are conditional on the grades. And now with people have got their offers withdrawn because they didn't get the grades, but now they will get the grades. They'll, they'll be able to go back and uh, make a claim. And come to them with new grades. Yeah, yeah, and make a claim to that place. But Tom, isn't the issue that not every university is going to have the places now. They might have already given out all their places and they're not just going to magically mm. be able to make more housing for students or make bigger lecture halls or more tutorials as kind of physical limits to universities to some extent, isn't there? No, completely. And even more so now that they're obviously under a lot of pressure, re-social distancing, all the rest of it to maintain these kinds of things. And again, what this has basically done, this U-turn, is just handed the nightmare over to the university sector (laughs) to some extent. Obviously, they've lifted the cap on places, um, which was put in place to stop particularly universities higher up the chain, just kind of hoovering up all the applicants to try and make up for a shortfall in international students. Which is definitely going to happen now. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's, again, that's the problem. All those universities that were relying on, you know, all the students who were going through clearing, for instance, last week, you know, now are in a far more perilous position. And I think it's just important that we recognise, because at the moment the debate has been, oh, this is another government cock up. How did they do this? What idiots? All the rest of it. Heads should roll, etc. But again, this all does stem back to the decision to close the schools and to stop the exams going ahead. And also, I think as more information came out about how virus spreads, you know, the fact that you saw reports from Sweden and Finland comparing, you know, the incidence of the virus amongst young people in those two places, Sweden not closing schools, sixteen downward, and Finland um, actually closing schools, seeing no difference there. We also, you know, just the evidence mounting up about how impactful, I mean, I don't know why this actually needs to be pointed out, <laughs> of the school closures, even with online learning, was going to really hit kids badly, and particularly ones from more impoverished backgrounds. Why more effort wasn't put into trying to ameliorate any of this and trying to make sure exams go ahead, I have no idea, because as we've kind of said, it doesn't matter what, how elegant your algorithm is or your complaints procedure or whatever deal is now struck with the universities to try and make sure that they can both stay afloat and offer people places uh, you're dealing with a huge crisis which was in to some extent of our own making um, and whilst it's it is easy to say that in hindsight there were some of us who were warning about this at the time shouted down as horrendously callous people but this was always going to be such an impactful thing it's just remarkable that it's taken this long to kind of realize that again. I think we're very much at the start of realizing the educational impact because of course although now in paper all these people have very good marks they actually didn't have a particularly intense experience of A-levels. They didn't have to do the exams, they didn't have to study for the exams. They might be relatively weakly placed to go into universities. So you're going to get a lot of people who might not have previously gotten into university because they're going to expand the places. Presumably some of the international student places will now be taken up by domestic students at the top unis and then that kind of shuffles down. So maybe a lot of people who were otherwise not going to get an opportunity to go to university will now get the opportunity. Of course, for some of them, they might thrive, they might do really well. But I think for a lot of them, particularly ones who got mediocre marks to begin with and, and perhaps weren't going to do that well in their exams but have now gone to university anyway. There's a big danger here that of students not doing particularly well at university, getting weak grades at university or kind of worthless degrees and then ending up dropping out and raking up tens of thousands of pounds of, of student debt 
in the process. So mm-hmm. it doesn't, it feels like we've created another issue further down the line here for these, for these students and for these universities that there's, there's now going to have to be unpacked for years to come especially since everyone's going to look very skeptically at the class of, of 2020 and their A-level results because everyone will know that they've been exaggerated. So there might even be fewer employment opportunities potentially because people just won't trust the system for those particular individuals. They'll have to be very careful with hiring them and maybe they'll just hire the class of 2021 or the class of 2019 instead. So it, it doesn't feel like we've, we've managed to solve this fundamental issue. And then, of course, as you're saying, further down the educational line, we've, we've had huge educational attainment loss you can't just mm. shut down schools for, for months and months and months and expect online learning at a very mediocre level provided by most schools to, to suffice. Of course, there's going to be huge gaps in, in student learning. John, how do, how do we go from, from here? What, what, what are we going to do? I mean, maybe this just feeds into the broader issue about whether or not so many people should be going to university and we should be putting so much focus on marks and grades when in fact not everyone should be doing that well. Not everyone necessarily needs to go to university and you can be perfectly successful if you don't. Yeah, I suppose there's, there's probably a silver lining in here somewhere where we can start having a conversation about the, uh, the flaws with, with going to university in the first place, as you say. Reading a, a Guardian article this morning, actually, that, that kind of made this the same point, which is the process by which we prepare ourselves for university, the exams, and in, in the case of Oxbridge and certain courses, interviews. It's, it's not actually a particularly effective or valuable process. And a lot of the time people come out, with, come out from university anyway having actually not learned an awful much but in, in the way of getting jobs. So you end up in the situation, as you said just now, where you don't, you end up saddled with debt without actually having any effective skills. So I'm not sure where we go from here, other than just to uh, to start talking about it more. I think the class of 2020 will have a very bizarre and unique experience of university. Tom, what does this say kind of more broadly about the way we see education? I think it says that we really don't appreciate it nearly as much as we should. I mean, the, the speed with which um, those decisions were made at the top of this crisis without much thought to what would happen. I mean, there's obviously, there's obviously a lot of presentism and kind of, you know, not really much far ahead thinking going on when you're in the middle of a crisis, but they had months to sort this out and to and to keep tabs on it and to see um, what could be done to ameliorate any of this. And none of that was really done. Again, I think it's interesting that quite rightly, we're very much focused on how this is going to hit young people's career prospects, you know, how it's going to help with that, you know, it's going to hinder how it's going to hinder social mobility and all the rest of it. But there's precious little appreciation for just even students who aren't in those transition years, who aren't taking GCSEs and A-levels. The amount of development and both educational as well as socially that takes place at school, which has just been completely cast out for a good chunk of this year, there's been no real appreciation of the impact of that and its knock-on impacts for, for their lives in general. And again, I think it just speaks to the fact that we often in part at least see education in purely instrumental terms um, it's purely in terms of well how is this going to boost social mobility how is this going to help the economy etc which is all very important particularly for this class of 2020 but it feels like are going to be uniquely shafted but again the fact that even there's just been four months of students having almost no tutelage you know there was that bit of research recently about two million students apparently had no contact at all during this time that's going to store up a lot of problems for the future as well just in terms of their development as human beings let alone as, as future workers etc so in this crisis, I think it has shown just how little faith we, we put in that. And this car crash just comes like a horrendous punctuation point to all of that. The government has been criticised for being too soft and too harsh in their policies to combat 
the arrival of hundreds of asylum seekers by boat in the channel over recent weeks. Tom, you've been writing about asylum seeker arrivals and what this says about our immigration debate. How do we end up mm. in this situation, though, to begin with? Why are all these people so keen to get to the UK? And what does this say, I suppose, more broadly about immigration and asylum and, and the kind of challenges we face well, it seems like this issue, particularly of ch- uh, crossings in the English Channel, is a relatively new one. You know, even as of a couple of years ago, it was you're talking about kind of the low hundreds of people actually taking this route, whereas so far this year already it's been what four and a half thousand at the last count. So we're seeing a, a huge jump, and that's an issue in and of itself. I think this is something that particularly people on on the left, there's this tendency to almost say this isn't an issue at all, whereas this is the world's most busiest shipping route. This is potentially very, very dangerous, if nothing else. So we should grasp it on that level. In terms of the kind of immediate reasons for it, you know, there is obviously a kind of, there has been both in terms of the weather, you know, it's a clearer crossing. There's been, again, more of a clamp down on the kind of more traditional routes that we've seen previously, people getting into lorries, et cetera. That seems to have been stemmed to a certain degree. There's obviously less cross-border travel in general as a result of the pandemic. So there's kind of near-term immediate reasons for this. And also, of course, the ongoing conditions in, in Calais and elsewhere for um, refugees and asylum seekers, which we all clear. But I think that the kind of bizarre culture war debate that we find ourselves in the middle at the moment, where you have one side accusing the other of being racist and the other side talking this hysterical talk about invasions of migrants and all the rest of it, I think speaks to the fact that we haven't really had, even with Brexit, even all these years later, a kind of open, honest discussion about all of this. It's kind of become a culture war. And I don't think that's good for anyone involved, unfortunately. I think the a lot of the heat that we've seen in this debate recently just shows we're still at that we're still not quite at that point where it feels like we can have an open and clear-eyed discussion about this kind of stuff. Because it's it's quite complex. So at the one level, there's a kind of legal discussion about the fact that, and as opponents of these arrivals will say, a refugee should seek asylum at the first safe country. And by these people going through multiple countries, getting to France, they should have already seeked asylum somewhere. And, and coming across to the UK is something that's unacceptable and we need to protect our borders and need the national sovereignty. On the other hand, though, of course, the British Navy, the, the, the Coast Guard can't just turn people around if they're coming. That would be unlawful to try to turn them back into France. And also, if someone does claim asylum, you have, I'd argue, both a kind of a moral duty as well as practical duty to, to consider their application. At the same time, though, it's kind of interesting in one way, um, the kind of people who are very opposed to these arrivals are the people who say Britain is a great place to be. Um, which kind of makes sense. These people want to come here. But the people who who want uh, are very uh, strongly in favour of these arrivals, constantly telling us how racist a society Britain is. And I, you can kind of make an argument here that if Britain was so racist, then why would all these asylum seekers so desperately put their lives in danger to come here? Clearly, this is a place people want to live. And I think this is a, a challenge basically every developed country has, which is inevitably there are more people who want to come to this country than necessarily would be popularly supported or, or, or could in the immediate short term be managed. You can make a kind of extreme libertarian case for unlimited free movement around the world. I, I don't, that's particularly realistic, even though I think we should be extremely welcoming of asylum seekers and we should be extremely welcoming of immigrants more broadly. And I say that myself as an immigrant to this country and I'd be hypocritical if I didn't. But at the same time, I, John, shouldn't we be a little bit worried about the way people are arriving, not only the physical danger that they're, they're doing by trying to cross the channel, the fact that it does seem like Britain is is lacking the most basic kind of national sovereignty control of her borders. The issue can be kind of broken down to three parts. We should have a conversation about the level to which the uh, crossing is secured, uh, both for the sake of the, the safety of the migrants themselves and also for our own border security, the criteria by which we decide to grant asylum and how open our immigration system should be. But I think importantly with the with the optics of people 
an increasing number of people, especially in the last couple of months coming over on the boats, it does have a visceral impact on people's sense of fairness. I think, unfortunately, when 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 it gets receives the sort of media attention that it has about people crossing the border getting put up in four-star hotels or, or whatever, it risks exacerbating negative connotations about immigrants who already live in the UK. Tom, is there is there a danger, and this is what I see kind of comparing this to the Australian debate, because Australia's had decades-long debates about mm. uh, boat arrivals, is a sense in which whilst you do want to have a generous immigration system, you want one that's relatively controlled. It was uh, John Howard, a former Australian prime minister, who famously said, we will decide who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they come. And that was very clearly saying, although John Howard oversaw one of the biggest immigration programs in Australia's history, um, he, he knew that in order to do that, in order to have popular support for immigration, you need to control your borders. You just can't have this sense in which there are these arrivals. Now, it might be 4,000, it might be 400. It doesn't seem to matter the sp- specific numbers because I think we, we probably can manage the specific numbers, but then you lose broader support for immigration if people feel like there's an onslaught coming and that the government doesn't have this under control and they just don't know where they're going for their immigration policy and they don't know how to make an argument for immigration, if they wanted to make that argument, they, they just don't seem to know what they're doing. And obviously, with Brexit going on at the same time, the UK's immigration policy is changing, but we don't seem to be having that discussion we need to have about, do we want to be a generous nation of refugees? Do we want only skilled migrants, as the government uh, seems to be saying? Like, how do we handle this these difficult questions? No, definitely. And I think two things can be true at the same time in this discussion. So one of which is that, again, the way in which Nigel Farage and other people are talking about this as an invasion, etc., it's hysterical and it's ugly. Because as we know, in terms of these boat crossings, obviously they're up this year, but last year there was something like 0.6% of immigration into the country. But I think the point John makes is important is because it's symbolic of something else. Um, it's symbolic of a lack of control. It's a symbolic. It's symbolic of us not being in control of our own affairs and our own borders. And I think what's been clear actually since the referendum, and you see this in the polling data from the Migration Observatory and, and who've pointed this out recently, is that views towards immigration have softened since the Brexit vote. And that's equally both amongst leavers and remainers. Because the thing that inflamed that issue for so long, the thing that made it everyone's top priority, you know, for month, for years and years running up to the referendum was the sense that we had no control over it whatsoever. I mean, it turned it into a huge issue in that respect. At the same time, I feel like that shouldn't make those of us who are in favour of a very open and generous policy, both in relation to asylum seekers and refugees, but also economic migrants more broadly. It's just important, I think, we have out that debate openly, because one of the things that irritates me, and I've written about it in the past week, is the level of kind of disingenuousness that you often get on the pro-migration left in relation to this discussion, Um, a tendency to only really talk about this in moralistic terms, to claim that everyone coming here, even on those boats, are asylum seekers and refugees, when when the reality is always a little bit more complicated than that. You know, these terms, morally speaking, are a little bit vexed anyway. You know, at what point does fleeing war rather than fleeing abject poverty move us more or less in one direction? And again, I think that disingenuousness feeds into this culture war, because if you just claim that everyone coming here is fleeing war, then it just invites the response, they're fleeing France. So again, we just get caught in this kind of very circular culture war. Dis- maybe, the, maybe the right to flee France, getting away from Macron is something I can I can empathise with. Maybe that kind of sideways way we kind of harness anti-French British jingoism to the ends of refugee... Well, why doesn't Nigel Farage appreciate as a as a such a Brexiteer that people really just want to get out of France? I think anyone coming over from France should be granted automatic asylum. To be honest, uh, it's really a mute mute issue. This is what I'm saying. New arguments for the new times. This is what's necessary. So why not? <laughs> exactly. It's it's a real lack of strategic guiding light by the by the pro immigration cap. Not to see this easy in is just play against the French. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Tom. Though it does does play to this this broader issue about how we talk about immigration and how we talk about migrants and there's there's very much 
misunderstood role and and importance mm. and value of immigration to the UK and the sense in which and you, everything can easily end up being blamed on immigration rather than governments taking responsibility for it. I think this will be something after Brexit is people complain about lack of quality local services, lack of house building in order to have enough houses for where people want to live. Even after Brexit, we're still going to have these issues because we haven't been building enough houses and and we we haven't been ensuring um, quality local services. And and all those issues um, seem to be the, the scapegoat becomes migrants and then a lot of the focus becomes on Brexit and wherever else, when in fact you, you can actually just get down and solve those fundamental issues. Um, if you want to make a factual argument about immigrants, it's that they tend to contribute on net far more to uh, in their taxes and, and in their, their economic productivity to the UK, and especially when you have an aging population. If you don't have immigrants, you have stagnation or lower quality of life and mounting government debt and higher taxes to kind of fund services for people who are aging. So it, it feels like you need to kind of make that case though, John, doesn't it? And if, you, if you're not willing to do that and, and get into complexities of it and you just yell, unless you support these people, you're racist, people are just going to have this very negative visual reaction to the asylum seekers and migration more broadly. I do feel like in some ways the, the left is its own worst enemy in this regard. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's perhaps it's unfair for me to ask that they they sort of put out the first olive branch and in, in trying to make a more empirically based argument about about immigration, as you just said, in, in sense of immigrants are actually a, a huge net positive for this country. But quite how we get to this place where we can have a, a sensible discussion about securing borders and and cutting down on these more dangerous forms of of, of getting into the country and the positive impact of of, of immigration i don't know I, I haven't i've never seen that in my lifetime it is it is impossible isn't it tom is it how do we how do we get there how do we change i refocus as we're having this debate this kind of discussion again the same with public health england and public health it just seems like mm. the way we talk about these issues is is quite weak and we, we haven't mm-hmm. worked out how to do it well no definitely and i think part of that is really taking the concerns of people who um have a concern about immigration or concerned about mass immigration seriously and i think that's one thing which again you can you can make all the kind of economic points that we want all of which i think are very valid but nevertheless it never really gets to grips with some of those broader concerns partly because you know the kind of net effect is is going to mask certain issues in certain communities you know in terms of Mm. job market or other things but also cultural issues that people have concerns about there being a lack of integration worth pointing out that actually some of the policies that are that are implemented for instance not allowing refugees and asylum seekers to work um, immediately them having to wait at least 12 months where you know applications are being processed that actually being a block to them actually integrating into into broader society and the economy so there's again it's worth kind of taking those issues seriously and seeing how a more liberal approach can take those issues on board that being in favor of immigration doesn't mean that you hate britain and everyone in it and you have no concern for what is these people's concerns about the ways in which their communities are changing in such a way that doesn't involve them at all, um, I think is going to be necessary to arguing for a more liberal immigration policy. How easy it is to make that marriage, I don't know. But at the same time, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, there's no iron law of politics that people in Britain are going to be broadly speaking sceptical of migration. There is plenty of arguments 
to be won here. And I think, again, that softening that we've seen in relation to attitudes towards immigration since the Brexit vote, the fact that whilst, you know, the Guardian pages might lead you to believe otherwise, we are among the most welcoming countries in Europe in relation to immigration. Again, animus towards outsiders, etc., is something that's been plunging for decades. But there still is that concern. It's partly about numbers. It's partly about culture. And I think if we do want to push for a more liberal policies we believe in, you've got to take those things seriously um, rather than dismiss them. That seems to be the tendency from a lot of people, particularly on the left at the moment. I think that's absolutely right. And, and the Answer of the Institute has supported the Lift the Ban campaign. Uh, we've also been quite supportive. We have a, a paper out this week on thinking about the issue of Kansas and, and free movement between these countries and not because, uh, as is often said in opposition to it, because they all happen to be Anglo-Saxon background, but because they're all kind of diverse, modern, liberal democracies where people have a similar set of values. And therefore, if you if you do polling in each country about would you be happy with free movement, you get very high support. It's, the lowest in the UK is about 60%. I think it's over 70% support in New Zealand. And it's got all to the fact that people feel comfortable with immigrants who they know uh, are coming here. And I think as most immigrants are coming here to work, to contribute and and to be, be part of the culture. I think for a long time, this the kind of multiculturalism narrative and, and the diversity narrative kind of undermined that because it sent a signal that new immigrants weren't here because they loved Britain, they were here to change Britain. Immigrants come in and they do change and they contribute and they they build on the culture rather than necessarily wanting to change the culture. Um, it's, it's almost like a salad where, you know, different parts of the, the culture come together and Britain is much better for the fact that you can get curries on every corner, but also you can now get good Chinese food and, and all sorts of different things. And that's kind of a cultural competition, a contribution just at one level in terms of the food or the kind of ideas that people bring in from, from different cultures and different backgrounds. I think there's a lot of benefits to immigration that can be physically seen if, if we're willing to kind of talk about it and think about it in, in more nuanced ways. No, definitely. And just, just to chime in on that, I think that's a really core point is the fact that this issue is not necessarily just about numbers. You know, the concerns people have about, again, kind of lack of integration, etc. Multiculturalism as a kind of state policy as it's been practiced, not multiculturalism as, you know, living amongst different cultures and us all appreciate that in the way that you've described, you know, growing up about around people whose lineages are from different parts of the world, as many of us who grew up in London did. It's about, again, that tendency to treat new arrivals as if they're here they should be celebrated on their own terms but you kind of live separate lives you're all you're all from your distinct cultures um, and that should be um, celebrated on some level but you know never shall they mix on some level that's been the kind of approach that we've had for a long time in this country and this is not to say that everyone should be you know forcibly assimilated into some sort of caricatured vision of what it is to be British but again that sense in which you are joining a nation in which you are going to both contribute but also integrate to be a part of this whole is something which has been missing from the discussion and I think has certainly um, inflamed a lot of those concerns around immigration which aren't necessarily about the numbers it's about again how we practice how we deal how we approach new arrivals which I think has been so frankly backward previously treating people as if they're irrevocably different just because they're from different parts of the world and I think that's a big change which I think would be very helpful um, in our discussions about this. I mean nothing more condescending than saying to someone oh because you don't come from the other kingdom we can't expect you to treat women equally to to men Mm. or to appreciate the fact that people have different sexual orientations or have different religious beliefs. I think you can have these quite universalist values and it's condescending to say that just because someone grew up in a, in a, in a different culture that they could never come to appreciate what the kind of liberal values that, that make our society great. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining the, the Pin Factory Adam Smith Institute's podcast this week. Tom Slater from Spikes, where he's the deputy editor and John McDonald, who's the head of government affairs at the ASI. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm our head of research and hope you have a delightful week. Thank you.